one. Painting. I've been using a series of paintings by an artist of his work hangs in the Jewish Museum. I believe it's in New York City. And he's done a series of paintings on the prophets and um, the minor prophets, that is. And um, Nahum is kind of a creepy painting, but he has kind of a creepy message. So um, look this morning, Nahum chapter 1 and verse number 1, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Let's just jump right in here. And in our introduction here, in our introductory verse, he uses a few words we need to look at. First of all, the burden. Uh, this Hebrew word Masah um, is burden, or it means a prophetic utterance. Um, often this word is used of the prophets by the prophets um, when they're speaking of judgment. So some, some would render it um, the judgment. Of Nineveh, of Nineveh, or the judgment that's coming against Nineveh, whatever, anytime you see this word burden associated with the prophets, it is a heavy message. It's something heavy that's something that's heavy on the heart of God, <coughs> something that's heavy on the heart of the prophet. Of course, he says it's against Nineveh, and when we studied the book of Jonah, we talked some about Nineveh. We see on this map here. Let's see if I can find it. Wow. There we go. Is it me or is that picture just blurry right now? Um, so here we have the heart of the Syrian empire. We have the capital city of Nineveh. It was one of the capitals at this time. It was the capital of the ancient empire of Assyria. It had been spared by God some 100, 150 years before when uh, Jonah came and he preached that God was going to destroy the city within so many days. They repented. And um, if you remember, they put on sackcloth and ashes and um, they cried out to the Lord and he delivered them. But eventually the city went back to its evil, went, went back to its cruelty and it was one of the most cruel and ruthless empires in the history of the world. Um, I was listening yesterday um, to one message about Nahum, and the preacher was talking about some of the means of torture, which one I didn't mention last time. He talked about that they would sometimes take their enemies into the desert and bury them alive with only their heads sticking out above the sand, and then drive something through their tongue so that they couldn't close their mouths correctly and then would leave them out there to go insane and dehydrate and die. Um, those were just some of the, you know, fun things they did, you know, peeling skin off of their enemies, things like that. Just a horrible, wicked um, group of people, not to mention their idolatry, their witchcraft. Um, it was just a really cruel people group. And you can see some of that cruelty in the etchings that they have found around the city of Nineveh that they have uncovered. Um, some amazing artwork, carvings that were on the walls of their palaces. And here's one you can see. They've got their knives ready to attack someone. And there are a number of etchings that showed them taking out their cruelty on people. Um, just 
really disturbing the way they celebrated in their art. They celebrated their cruelty. So it was a very wicked group of people. <clears throat> the um, theme verse, I would say, would be verse number one of, sorry, verse number three of chapter one. He says here, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. In other words, he's not going to let the wicked get away with their sin. And I think it's interesting the way this, this part of the verse is laid out. He starts out, the Lord is slow to anger. Well, what's he talking about? Well, 150, 100 years before, God had sent a message to these people telling them to repent. They repented. And um, the Lord had been patient with them all of those years after they turned away from him again. And um, he had been patient. And I believe it was Paul who said that we should not consider God's patience, his long-suffering. We, we shouldn't allow that to make us think that God doesn't judge. Because God does judge the wicked. And the book of Nahum shows two things. Number one, it shows that God is slow to anger, but that God will eventually judge the wicked. He always does. He's not going to let them get away with their sin. The name Nahum means consolation or comfort. And whereas this was not a very comforting message for Nineveh, it was a comforting message for God's people of Judah. The northern kingdom had already been taken away by the Assyrians. I never really thought about it till this morning. I was brushing my teeth, and all of a sudden it struck me that the Assyrians were defeated by the Babylonians. That would mean that those who were still living from the northern kingdom were sucked into the Babylonian captivity when um, Nineveh was destroyed. I, I, had just, I had never thought about that before, but the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom ended up saturated into the same nation eventually. Um, or the same empire. <clears throat> Just a thought I'd never thought about before. But this does bring comfort, consolation to God's people. The southern kingdom had been, although they were not taken away into captivity, they had been oppressed, they had been attacked. Some of their people had been taken into the Assyrian captivity, and they were having to pay heavy taxes to the Assyrians to make them leave them alone. And so even King Hezekiah was paying taxes. In fact, they've got a relief, uh, have found a relief on one of the walls from Nineveh, and it showed um, King Hezekiah bowing down before the king of the Assyrians. And of course, we don't know that he literally bowed down before him. Maybe it was one of his representatives, maybe an ambassador, we would call it today, to the Assyrians. Um, but even the artwork of the um, Assyrians showed that the king of Judah was in some level of servitude to the Assyrians as he was paying heavy taxes. Um, so it was going to be a comfort to them that the Assyrians were going to be destroyed. We, the only thing we know about Nahum is his name and that he was from Elkosh. And we also know that he was a prophet of the southern kingdom. Um, many believe he was born in the north. Nobody knows where Elkosh was located, it's one of those cities that have either disappeared off of the map, or it could be that the name was changed. The city of Capernaum um, literally means the village of Nahum. 
And so many assume that this is the Nahum that the city was named after. So maybe Elkosh was a nearby village. <coughs> and when they started the village of um, Capernaum, they named it after him. Or perhaps um, Capernaum is Elkosh, and the name was changed to honor the prophet. <coughs> we don't really know. And of course, the Nahum that Capernaum's named after could be a different Nahum. But if you look right here where the red underline is, we have the city of Capernaum, which is where Christ did a lot of ministry. And as I've already said, he was a prophet to the southern kingdom, whether Elkosh was in the north or south. Um, when the Assyrian captivity took place, he was in the south and did not go away with that captivity. The dates of the book, somewhere between 650 and 612 <coughs> BC. This is dated because in the book, we know he talks about two different historical events that we know the dates to. So we know he wrote between those two events. One of those, the first, the earliest event he mentions <coughs> was the destruction of the Egyptian capital of No, or as it is on maps, like this map here, the city of Thebes. City of Thebes, uh, also called Noamon, and he simply calls it No here in the scripture. If we look over here, chapter 3 and verse number 8, he says, Art thou better? As he's telling them they're going to be judged, art thou better than populous No that was situate among the rivers? Um, the word populous here is that word Ammon, which means highly populated or many. And so, um, some Bible translations have this translated populous no, meaning it's a highly populated city, um, and some simply translate it Ammon, don't actually translate the word no. Ammon was a god that they worshipped in the city of Thebes. In fact, um, if you've heard of Lexor, Lexor is where the huge um, temple was to the god Ammon. And so he says, populous no, are you better than them? Do you really think that God is going to spare you? Because the Assyrians had come in, had destroyed this city. And of course, the later date would be um, the destruction of Nineveh. So somewhere in between this great city of Thebes, <coughs> which now apparently it's looked at as two different places, Thebes and Lexor, um, you can find both on the map, but it's actually in ancient times, was the same city. It was built on both sides of the Nile. So if you can imagine, kind of like twin cities, except this was one city. They built part of it on one side, part of it on the other. It was the largest city in the world at the time, um, having at least some 80,000 people. Um, so a huge city. And he said, do you really think you're better than the Egyptians. They were destroyed. You're going to be destroyed as well. Of course, here on the map of the prophets, I don't know if anybody, if, if somebody else didn't catch, if somebody else caught this, you didn't tell me about it. But I accidentally had Nahum over here in all the charts earlier. I had the right dates. Yeah, John Hornbuckle, he saw it. He just didn't want to embarrass me, right? Um, anyway, I, I I don't know how many times we've looked at this chart already, and this week I looked and I'm like, Nahum's not at the right place. Historically, this doesn't fit. I had him right after Jonah, and um, 
then I looked at the dates on the chart, and I'm like, the dates don't flow. Um, anyway, um, but here's where we have Nahum, right toward the middle of the Minor Prophets. The book is structured in two poems. The first one, chapter one, I would say, is a poem about the greatness of God or the power of God. <coughs> then poem number two is chapters two and three, as we have it in our English Bibles, and that is the destruction of Nineveh. So let's jump right into this. Really, in chapter one, in this first poem, we can see a contrast. <coughs> Sorry, I am not sick. <clears throat> this is asthma problems that hit me just as we pulled up at church this morning. <clears throat> Perfect timing, right? We can look at two aspects of God's character here. They are not in contrast to one another. We often think God is either loving or he's a judge. God is angry or he's kind. And we look at them as things that are against one another, things that are opposite to one another. And yet, if we look at God, what he is, he always is. He doesn't change. So he is just, and he is loving, and he is kind, and he is angry. All these things can ha be happening at the same time because he's God. So we're just going to quickly run through these. So I have two parts to the chart. Number one, in verse two, it says that God is jealous. We look in our society as jealousy as being a bad thing. Um, that's, I don't know where we got that idea. Envy is a bad thing. Jealousy can be a good thing. A husband should be jealous for his wife. Um, I was listening to Ada, uh, not Ada Betozer, um, uh, J. Vernon McGee this week, and he was preaching about this verse right here. And he got to talking about marriage. And he said, wives, he said, I, he had a beautiful woman uh, brag to him one time that her husband was not jealous of her. And he said, you don't have a very good, oh no, he said, I am so sorry to hear that. And she said, what? No, that's a good thing. My husband shouldn't be jealous. He said, you don't have a very good marriage if your husband is not jealous of you. He should want you to be for him alone. He should have this kind. Anyway, it's a, a, people look at you really funny sometimes when you say jealousy is a good thing. A spouse should be jealous over their spouse. I mean, we shouldn't be happy when our spouse is flirtatious with someone else. Amen? Do I get an amen there? Um, and so this is the way God is. I mean, how does the ten, do the Ten Commandments start? The Lord thy God is a jealous God. And so God was jealous over the people, even over the people of Nineveh. God was jealous over them. They had been his people when they repented, when they turned to him. He said, God revengeth, or we would use the word avenge today for, um, <coughs> for this Hebrew term. He said, God is furious. He said, God will have vengeance on the adversary. He said there would be wrath for his enemies. But then he says, God is slow to anger. And I put this under judgment because it is. It's part of his judgment. This is the way God judges. God is not like us. We get angry and boom, we lash out. Anybody ever lashed out over somebody? You know, we lash out in traffic. We lash out at our kids. You know? um, we, we have a tendency to be this way. God is not. He does not just lash out. He is slow to anger. He is long-suffering. He is patient. And he has been here with the Ninevites. He has been patient for some 100 to 150 years. He has been patient with them ever since Jonah has been there and preached to them. 
I put this also under grace, though, because that is the grace of God. Of course, you could put everything under the grace of God in this message. But the way we think as human beings, um, and, and I think Nahum highlights this. He shows both sides of God, his judgment and his grace, both abounding at the same time. He said he's great in power. And in the context here, what is this power? His ability to judge, his ability to wipe out a nation a civilization, God has the power to do this. And of course, this verse we read, will not acquit, he will not leave unpunished the wicked. He has his way in the whirlwind. And so here he starts talking about nature for a minute. And it's interesting because when you study the history of Nineveh and its destruction, you find out nature was involved in the Babylonians. Finally, after having some two or three year siege of the city of Nineveh, they were finally able to break through when the weather intervened. He says he has his way in the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He drieth the rivers. God can make Bashan wither. That was an area in the Holy Land that had very fertile pastures. He makes Carmel wither. This was a place um, known for its farming, specifically its vineyards. He makes the flower of Lebanon to wither. Lebanon was known for its forests. And so he says he can take the pastures, he can take the farmlands, he can take the forest. God can make all those dry up. He could send a drought that would destroy all of that if he so wanted to. Let's see. Oh, there we go. It's catching up. He makes the mountains quake at his presence. The hills melt at his presence. The earth burns at his presence. The world burns at his presence. The inhabitants of the world burn at his presence. Verse 6, we see the indignation of God, the anger of God. It says that his fury is poured out like fire. Rocks are thrown down by him. But then in verse 7, he says, God is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth those that trust in him. We go to verse number 8. He says, but, but, I think it's powerful. And that's one reason why I put these two categories here. Because Nahum says, the Lord is good. He says all these wonderful things about God. And then he says, but, but, with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof. So he's going to bring an utter end. Then he says, darkness pursues his enemies. He says again in verse 9, he's going to bring an utter end to this place. Then he says in verse 9, there would be no second chance. Look what he says. What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. What's he talking about? Jonah has already come. Jonah has preached to them. They afflicted themselves before the Lord, and the Lord showed mercy to them. He said, it's not happening a second time. It's over. It's too late. They had gone too far. He said they would be devoured. He says in verse 12, they would be cut down. Now, in this process, there's an interesting statement he makes. Let's read verse 12. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Interesting term here, doesn't make a lot of sense. 
I mean, in the context of the passage, you're reading along, you're hearing how God's going to judge them. And then all of a sudden he says, though they be quiet. Well, everything we know about the Assyrians from the Bible and from history, we know they weren't a quiet people. So that really doesn't make sense in the context. It doesn't make sense in the Hebrew. It doesn't make sense in English. Um, But this verse is a testament to the importance of a literal translation of Scripture. That the Scripture be translated. Whether we understand it or not, we translate it the way it says it in the Hebrew. And this is the case with Nahum chapter 1 and verse 12. If you literally translate it, this is what comes out, though they be quiet. Um, and likewise, many, they'll be cut down when he passes through. Um, so let's look at this for a second. So for years, people did not understand this. Translators of King James and other old translations just translated what it said instead of trying to figure out what it means and then translating it into this. I got really upset last night when I looked at some other translations of some of the verses in Nahum. They were not translated. They were expounded. Things that belonged in the notes ended up in the translation. Um, Like when it says rivers, they put the word Nile there. It's not what the biblical text says. The Bible doesn't say they, uh, anyway, it just really starts bothering me when people say, well, okay, that would have been, they were on the Nile River. And so let's take the, leave out the word river. You don't want people to have to study to figure out where that river was. Let's put the word Nile. You've changed the word of God when you put it into a different language. We're not supposed to mess with the word of God like that. So it gets translated this way, though they be quiet and likewise many. Um, And I'm sure the Hebrew scribes for many years didn't understand what they were transcribing or copying down. But they uncovered legal documents in, here's one of them. They uncovered a lot of documents like this, the carvings into this stone. Um, And they started noticing that there was this legal formula that actually translated into Hebrew and then into English, or actually it was, um, what's the word? It was transliterated into Hebrew and then translated into English would literally come out, though they be quiet and many. What's it talking about? Well, as they study these these discs that had the um, Assyrian writing on it, they found that this meant it indicated joint responsibility for carrying out an obligation. So if you had a group of people that were responsible for something, legally, it was a group. It would be a, a, they would be dealt with as a group. And so that's the terminology there he's using here. Though they be quiet and likewise many, he's referring to an Assyrian law. Even though there be a whole bunch of you that are joined together, um, you're still going to be cut down. Yeah, you may be a large number of people. You're unified against God is what he's saying. What was their obligation? What was the thing they were working against as a group? They were working against God. And he said, even though you've done this, um, he said, you're going to be cut down. And I think this is so powerful and powerful that we, we look at how many years people have studied this, trying to understand what this phrase meant exactly. And it wasn't until they dug up that archaeological, they found those documents, that they went, oh, this is what the Bible means. And one reason why I think it is so powerful and that it has been preserved in that Assyrian language, 
or the Syrian wording is because it shows once again the accuracy of Scripture. That Nahum would have quoted a current Assyrian law and put it into the biblical text. And for years, people tried to study this and understand it in Hebrew. Well, he wasn't quoting a Hebrew law, so it wouldn't make sense to think of it with a Hebrew mind. But when you understand, oh, wait, he's quoting an Assyrian law. He's using their own laws against them is what God is doing here. And Nahum quotes that. To me, that was such a cool thing to find this week. And I was so glad to find that explanation because I couldn't understand why the Assyrians were suddenly so quiet. Um, That's not what it meant. Of course, then he says in the last part of verse 12, Assyria would afflict Judah no more. God was going to break his yoke off of him. He was going to burst their bands asunder. So here we see the grace of God in dealing with his people. He said, I'm going to deliver you from your enemy. Then he went on in verse 14, Nineveh's name would no longer be perpetuated. Their idols would be cut off. He was going to make their grave. What a powerful, powerful statement. I will make your grave. But then in verse 15, he tells them that the gospel is coming. Almost word for word, Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 29 and verse 7. He says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. So here he has this proclamation that the gospel is coming. We have good news. And yes, the good news to the um, people of Judah at the time could have been in direct context could have been that your enemy is going to be destroyed. But if we look at Isaiah and we study the context of what Isaiah is talking about, he's talking about the Messiah coming. The Messiah is bringing the good news. So I think that's what Nahum is doing here is in the midst of all this, he does tell them that hope is coming. The gospel, the good news is going to be preached. Peace is going to be published. It's going to be proclaimed and Nineveh will no longer bother you. She'll pass through you no more. And then he says again, she will be utterly cut off. So this is the end of this first poem. Let's go on to the second. Beginning in chapter 2, we find, um, chapters 2 and 3, we find the second poem about the destruction of Nineveh. Nahum chapter 2 and verse 1. We're just going to look at a few of these verses here. First of all, we have God taunting the people of Nineveh. Look how he begins. He that dashed in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition. Watch the way. Make thy loins strong. Fortify thy power mightily. God is not giving them a charge like, quit ye men, be strong. He's not giving them an encouraging charge. He's mocking them. He's making fun of them. He's he's poking them, going, hurry, hurry, prepare yourself. Get ready. Stand. That that first one about keep the munition, it literally means to stand, watch on the wall. Then he tells them to watch the roads. Then he tells them to put on their armor. And the last one is a simple statement. Strengthen yourself. Get yourself ready. Be strong. Get ready to face the enemy. Then we can see the intensity of the battle that was coming. That's described chapter 2, beginning of verse 3. The shield of his mighty men is made red. I, at first glance, thought that was talking about blood was going to cover the shields. 
but apparently they actually would either cover their shields with red or would actually make them out of copper so that when the light would hit them, they would look red. Um, and then he said, the valiant men are in scarlet. Apparently their uniforms, the Syrian uniforms were red. This was going to look scary. You got this bloody looking force coming at you on the battlefield. And so he's literally just telling them, get ready for war. He says, the chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir tree shall be terribly shaken. The chariot shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broadways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like lightnings. Now, some liberals will tell you that this is um, a prediction of the automobile. That's a thing. I remember hearing that as a kid, that this verse was talking about that God was prophesying that the automobile would be made one day. Pardon my language. That's stupid. Look at the context. What is this verse about? It's about the invasion of an enemy coming on Nineveh. It's not talking about John Ford and the automobile. Wrong time period. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I hope I didn't offend anybody using that strong of a term. The biblical term would be that's brutish. That was the old English for the new word stupid. Um, same word. It's foolish to go into the Bible and find things like that and stretch them out and make them apply to things they don't apply to. This has nothing to do with automobiles. This has to do with chariots. He's talking about the intensity of battle. These are going to jostle one against another. Can you imagine when the chariots roll into Nineveh, the Babylonian chariots against the Assyrian chariots? And apparently the Assyrians had top of the line, latest model chariots. They were leaders in chariot production. But he says, they're going to be like flames of fire. They're going to be like lightning. This is going to be intense. Oh, and then he says, let's go back there for a second. Then he says, look at chapter 3, <coughs> verses 2 and 3. He further gives more intensity of the battle. He said, the noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. Uh, Nahum used such beautiful language. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is multitude slain and a great number of carcasses, and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. This is going to be a bloody, bloody battle. Then in chapter 2 and verse number 6, he prophesies nature's involvement in this. God is going to use nature to help with this invasion. Verse number six, he says, the gates of the river shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. Interesting statement there, but if you study it in history, you find that what happened, and I'm just going to quote here the Moody Bible commentary. In the third year of the siege, heavy rains caused a nearby river to flood, uh, uh, to flood part of the city and break part of the walls. So the third year of the siege, they're surrounding the city. The walls of Nineveh were so impenetrable, they did not have a way of being able to break down the walls. God steps in, not Mother Nature, God. And these heavy rains come, and um, they say they even opened the, um, the, lev the levee system they had for, um, 
the irrigation system rather, um, that, they would that they used, that they opened the irrigation system and caused more water to flow through. And this flood came through and it saturated the wall and saturated the wall and saturated the wall until part of the wall finally collapsed. So what the Babylonians couldn't do, God did. And so a year, maybe six months, maybe three months before all this starts happening, Nahum tells them what's going to happen. The wall is going to fall down. What's going to cause it? It's going to be caused by the water. Um, verse 9 of chapter 2, I have the wrong verse here. I don't think that's verse 9. Let me look here. Yeah, yeah, it is verse 9. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. He said there's no end to all of the stuff. But think about it. They've captured stuff from the northern kingdom of Israel. They've, they've captured stuff from Judah when they took some of the villages there. They have been torturing and looting for years. Literally a few hundred years they've been doing this. So they have a huge collection of stuff, valuable stuff. And so he says, when Babylon comes in and they take it, he said, what was the word he used? There's none end. Well, the Babylonian Chronicle, this is it right here, um, they uncovered in Babylon that tells the story of the, partly the invasion of um, Nineveh. Guess what they say? There was a quantity beyond counting. I just thought that was really interesting because the Bible said it was without end. You can't count what they were going to get out of the city. And the Babylonians recorded, they said, oh, there was more than we could count. I don't know. I just think that's pretty powerful. Nahum chapter 2, we see um, the rulers of Nineveh had lions that they kept for hunting. We're running out of time, so I'm not going to take time to read those verses. I encourage you to read the whole chapter later. It only takes a few minutes to sit down and read through it. But he talks about their lions. This is part of... Uh, Picture of a relief from the wall, a wall in Nineveh. Notice the lions. People used to criticize the Bible for talking about lions in Nineveh um, because lions don't live there. Well, guess what? They had had lions brought up from Africa. Why? Their rulers liked hunting lions. I mean, it showed how powerful they were. You know, man, I'm a tough guy. I hunt lions. You know, lions that they had in a cage and then they took outside and released and then they went to kill it. But anyway, um, they still felt tough because they killed the lions. But often on the walls, you find the ruler of, of Nineveh, of Assyria, pictured as a lion. So it was a symbol of their greatness, of their power as a nation. So when Nahum spoke of the destruction of the lions, it was literal. Their lions would probably be killed, although the um, Babylonians had li kept lions as well. So I don't know. Maybe they would take those. Maybe it's 100% just figurative speech here. Whatever the case is, um, I, I believe it may be both. The rulers of Nineveh had lions. Uh, as I've already said, Nineveh's compared to lions and their den. So if you read that, thinking about the lion being the king, the lioness being the queen, and the, the, um, the whelps here or the cubs being the descendants of the king, 
Um, it makes a lot of sense. He also uses it to describe this picture, to describe their violence as they ripped apart their enemies to feed their families. Nahum chapter 3 and um, verses 1, 4, and then 4 through 5, God calls them the bloody city. He said they were guilty of whoredom. They were guilty of witchcraft. Of course, he also says they're guilty of idolatry, which would be taken care of later. But then in Nahum chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, as we come to the end, God declares the destruction of every level of their society. If you look in verse 17, he says, Thy crowned shall be as locusts, thy captains. Then if you keep going down, verse 18, thy shepherds. Uh, then he says, thy nobles. Then he says, thy people is scattered upon the mountain, and no man gathereth them. In other words, every level of your society is going to be dealt with. It's going to be judged. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brood of thee shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? Either there is no nation on earth at that time in that region that would not hear the news. And when they heard it, they were going to celebrate because you have tortured every single every single um, country around you. They're all going to cheer. They're going to clap their hands. So God says this is going to be final. This is going to be a complete and final judgment. Well, I've seen ancient, pic well, ancient, not ancient. I've seen really, really old black and white pictures of when they first came to look at Nineveh and to start excavating it. It was just a big mound. Well, then they start excavating. And here we see in this picture, part of the walls, of the ancient city of Nineveh. They've, un, they've dug up a lot of stuff in this city and been able to learn a lot and find, as we've already seen, confirmations of Scripture. But ISIS considers it very idolatrous. So guess what ISIS did? This is a member of ISIS on a bulldozer. And you just thought that the Babylonians had destroyed Nineveh enough God gets uncovered, partially excavated. It's a world heritage place, you know. I mean, it's, it's a treasure to the world. And yes, it is, you know, as far as being able to interpret Scripture. and Well, not interpret it, but just understand and see confirmation of Scriptures. But uh, the ISIS helped carry, further carry out God's total destruction of Nineveh. God said, oh, you're going to uncover it? Oh, you're going to make it look pretty again? Okay, here's ISIS. And ISIS takes care of it. Anyway, pretty fascinating that God's word continues, even with wicked men like ISIS. So what, what, what's the main lesson I think we should take away from the book of Nahum? I think that main lesson, we go back to what I said was, I think, the key verse. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. I think the main lesson we need to get from this is God will judge sin. Not just for the wicked, but for even God's people. He's going to discipline us. He's going to deal with sin. Yes, he's long-suffering. Yes, he puts up with it for a long time. But God is going to get around to dealing with our sin. And so we need to keep short accounts of our sin, confess our sin to God. As God's people, we realize we are under grace. Praise God but it doesn't give us an excuse to get away with sin. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the power that it has. We thank you for the ways modern archaeology has just continued to confirm the accuracy and the power of your word. 
Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to trust it more. Lord, help us to remember this week that you will judge. So Lord, help that to encourage us to witness to others that are lost. And Lord, to live for you and to, to keep short accounts of our sin. Lord, we thank you for being a just God and a loving God and a kind God and a merciful God. And Lord, we just thank you that you do love us and that you are good. Even in the midst of judgment, you are always good. Pray that you bless the remainder of our services and activities today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.